From 11FS, I'm Simon Taylor and this is Fintech Insider News. Today we bring you CYBG cans a virgin money deal with 10x, Revolut is set to raise $500 million from SoftBank and we talk Erica's and Merica's with Bank of America facing a trademark dispute over their chatbot. All this and more on today's show. Welcome to episode 271 of Fintech Insider. My name's Simon Taylor, and well, I guess I'm your host today, but I'm joined by, well, none other than Mr. Jason Bates. Jason, how are you? I'm very well, sir. How are you? I am quite well. What have you been up to? Uh, Behavioral finance this week is my new greatest, biggest obsession, like how people mentally structure their sort of financial services and uh, and the the ways in which you can pull small levers to get like good outcomes for people. Ooh. Really into it. Nudges and are people using gut feel? Do they have a spreadsheet? All kinds of good stuff. Oh well, we'll have to do a show on that at some point. But today um, we're joined uh, by some amazing guests, um, and as always, we're coming to you live from the beautiful Eleven FS office in WeWork Oldgate, in the heart of fintech, of course, which is London. Um, don't forget, if you have any questions for us or a new story you catch and you want us to cover, then drop us an email, podcast at 11fs.com, or just find us on social media. And of course, as I did foreshadow it, we are joined by some guests. Um, and of course, first and uh, joining us from the Netherlands, we have Just uh, Lobez. Is that how you say your last name? Yeah, sort of. <laughs> <laughs> Who is a product manager at Rabobank. Just, how are you doing? Very good, thank you. And uh, we have Diana Paredes, who's the CEO of Suede Labs. Diana, how are you? I'm great, thank you. Great to have you back. Um, let's get on with the news, shall we? Let's do it. Let's do this. All right, the first story comes from Frenextra, and CYBG have apparently canned the Virgin Money deal with Anthony Jenkins' startup. Um, so the new owner of uh, Virgin Money, of course, is CYBG. Um, this apparently wasn't entirely unexpected since David Duffy, the CEO of CYBG, uh, had hinted since securing the deal that they were likely to use their own technology platform. That was kind of always the intent. Um, confirmation that they're ditching this deal with 10x may apparently be a blow to Mr. Jenkins, who's been in talks with investors for several months about uh, substantial new funding. Um, at the time of the takeover, however, CYBG flagged up £120 million in pre-tax cost synergies, including mothballing um, Virgin Money's online banking product. So this was kind of foreshadowed. We kind of knew this was coming um, when they did the takeover, but news has now broken. Now, um, a CYG, CYBG spokesman, easy for me to say, said um, 10x Future Technologies has been a valuable partner to Virgin Money through its digital journey. However, since we first announced our proposed acquisition, we've been clear that we plan to use CYBG's uh, existing IB technology platform designed for the world of open banking to support our customers. Wow. Um, does anybody know anything about this in the, in the background? Does it, did anybody not expect this? I didn't expect it, actually, because, um, I mean, B, which is uh, CYBG's big sort of in- internet digital banking play, um, had the most amazing branding, the most amazing messaging, looked so, like, shiny and, and lovely. But actually, when you dug into the product, and this is a definitely a personal viewpoint, it felt like it was a shiny uh, veneer that had been put on uh, a traditional core banking system. And I understand that that's, that that's what, it, what it was. So the fact that you've got 10x, which 
has, has well, for longer than 11FS has been around for two and a half, three years, been developing a next generation core banking system that has all of those uh, you know, new architectural patterns, not the big mainframe piece. Like if you're three years in and the thing's going well, you'd think, well, hold on a minute, we're, you know, we've got the holy grail, something that's that's actually already been built, already, you know, in process. Why wouldn't you use that rather than stick with the traditional system that you have? Yeah, I mean, I think that the I was not surprised. I thought that something that could happen, uh, partly because the the reality of an acquisition is that those kind of things do happen. And when you look at it from like a pure startup tech perspective, if after three years you still don't have another customer, Virgin Money being their only customer, then there is probably something else going on there, which is a bit of a pity because I think people were really expecting a lot from you know 10x and maybe put a lot of pressure on them. But like having just one customer after three years is quite dangerous. And that's the, the proof of it. Well, one customer without something live. Yeah, well. without something live and something to prove for it. Right? Yes. So. Do you see the need? Sorry to cut across you there, Diana. I feel bad now. But no, you're, ahead, you're in full ahead. flow. But I just it just hit me. And I'm going to go with it. I'm going to roll with it. <laughs> yes. Do you feel that, that what Jason was saying about like this, this, um, this need for increased digital capability to the very core as being something that will... You know, banks are doing more with. I know um, we've seen in the Dutch market a lot of people kind of spinning things out to the side and doing things under new brands so that they can do things with a more modern architecture sometimes to, to kind of build that that sort of uh, platform of the future. Uh, but this is that we're going to see this being a trend or is this something that's, uh, that's going to go away uh, as a result of this? Uh, well, I think you will see both banks building their own new platforms and uh, yeah, new tech companies building on uh, f- from scratch. Basically, if we look at if I look at Rabobank, if you look at our infrastructure and our uh, technology, that is state of the art. So we do everything in the cloud. We are using microservices. Our app is a is a hybrid app, and we're using Ionic, for instance. So basically, we have state of the art technology to build our banking platform, but we also uh, set up new companies, new startups. Uh, from within the, the banking program, uh, and they build from scratch on uh, on their things own, like AWS or uh, on their own. Exactly. I, and so I think this both. is something that's not known much about the Dutch banking market is how common that trend is to go. I mean, ING have done it, and certainly ABN have done it as well as Rabo. In yeah, that absolutely. this this kind of one, yes, modernizing your internal core t- for today, but two, creating these new legal entities. Yeah. I think is a really interesting uh, model. And what's really cool at Rabobank, we have this innovation program called uh, the Moonshot uh, program. And basically, uh, everyone in the company can come up with a good idea. And if your idea wins the competition, you can start your own company, basically. And Rabobank helps you to set it up. And I was involved in it uh, two years ago. I went to the uh, the, the demo day, oh, met the awesome. teams, yeah. did the whole thing. <laughs> it, it truly surprised me. I think the it, this thing that was most interesting was that they'd they'd sort of uh, won this year of going to work on the project themselves, being uh, let, uh, uh, being allowed to leave their their role within the bank in order to do it. Yeah, and exactly. the people who had done that, I think, were going to struggle to to come back into their normal uh, roles just because they'd really been given the the, the option, the capability to do you know, a new proposition. How do you do that from an HR perspective? Like, I'm really interested in the, like, you've got somebody who's won this opportunity to go work in a startup. I mean, Diana, you and I are veterans of Barclays, where you actually had to leave your job to go build your startup. So I'm interested in how how have you made that happen from an HR perspective, like at the highest level? 
Yeah, so most of the times uh, the guys who win the competition, they actually go outside of the bank for a couple of months. So for three months they go to uh, start a boot camp, for instance, and they can work on their ID and their product further. And then after that period, most of them actually come back to work within the bank. Uh, and they have we have our own innovation hub where they can sit and uh, they, they can do their stuff there. And, and how does yeah. it work in terms of equity? So do you guys give them funding and then get equity on the back of it? Or? Um, yeah, it actually already has delivered some uh, uh, very successful uh, products so for instance uh, I can name a couple we, we in the Netherlands we have uh, uh, we have a, we have implemented the IBAN name check which is basically a, a solution for invoice fraud that was going on so uh, uh, thieves were stealing your invoices and then were uh, creating a fake invoice Gar, with my invoices. On it. <laughs> <laughs> and basically all the Dutch banks said oh that's a problem we can't really solve and you when you transfer money you transfer it to the IBAN number and mm -hmm. we can't help you with yeah, that yeah. then a colleague of mine said well I have an idea I know how to fix this so he actually pitched that and was able to start a company uh, for it. And he owns, um, I mean, so he... No, no. So, so most of the times Rabobank stays sort of the main shareholder of okay. the company. Uh, and then, yeah, some of the um, uh, startups that are a little bit further ahead and a little bit more successful, there we are now in talk with uh, uh, basically the, the people who came up with the ideas if they can get a share or... Something like so that. So it's but further down the line that they get potential like funder, yeah, like, yeah, and some uh, 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 equity. Yeah, so they there's don't start with equity. There's no. a risk reward thing, I guess. There isn't there because, like, um, I mean, it's probably worth telling a little bit about your own story. You, mm. you were in Barclays, you had this idea, and you were like, "Well, I should I should I not do it?" And and actually, you took the risk to jump outside yeah. and go build it. But actually, the advantage of that is you're backing yourself. There's a lot more risk to you, but the reward is also higher in terms of equity because yeah, you're not completely. got the company behind you. And I think that the I mean, it's it's difficult. I think because in general, people who are entrepreneurs or intrapreneurs in this case, they have very particular kind of personalities it takes a lot of energy to drive something internally and to do that with no equity on the table i think takes you know very particular mentality which is still really commendable i just think that it would be very difficult for a funder that's your point it's of, of course it's rather new uh, yeah also within rabobank so we have to learn from it and yeah. uh, i think the model will change a bit in the future but yeah I'm not sure uh, well it's that sort of halfway house because on one hand you know, it, it's backed by Rabobank. So do you have to go out and get your seed for, seed round and then A round because then we're all out of a job? Well, actually, you know, my employer is backing me doing this. And I think then the upside is, okay, so I'm not going to end up lying on a beach with millions and millions, but I get to work in a, you know, in a way that gives me autonomy on a project that I personally find find is important. And I'm sure actually the day-to-day -day meaning and an experience probably makes up for the you know yeah. some of that to, to combined with the security of of working completely you know, and i think that the but i do think that it's you know not everything will work for everyone right yeah. and and that's and, the and reality but it's people, really interesting there are different people at different life stages right yeah. so if, if you're you know with a family and older then you may still have this burning desire to get you know to do something but you might not be able to take the same risk that somebody else can just very briefly rounding this back into this story um you know th i think this um kind of story around uh, virgin money on the one hand you see uh you know there's the pros and cons of acquisitions and this probably shouldn't be expected and maybe um 
um, Tenex have been caught in the caught in the drift here a little bit. But also, um, you know, where are the other client announcements and and what comes after it? You know, years later, and I think this kind of comes to the idea of you know, should there be something about um, getting to that um, minimum lovable product first, That's getting right. rather than you know, and I don't know what the tech architecture strategy is, but is there something about the way in which you assume you have to build a thing that we can learn from this? Yeah, I mean, I think that the 101 of startup mentality is the whole, you know, lean startup, MVP, you get stuff out there, you learn, learn fast, you break fast. Possible. Yeah, exactly. And so three years down the line to not have anything to that you've broken in a way mm. or that you have better, like, you know, lessons learned from, it's, it's actually quite tough. I, I think there is this assumption that you have to do all of the, you have to be feature complete on day one. And actually, I think the, some of the fintechs have proven that, no, you don't need to be feature complete. Actually, far less features, but something that can iterate far faster is, is actually a strategic advantage uh, in the market. But I think it's, it's an interesting question for CY. Uh, C-Y-B-G. It's not just me. It is isn't. It's difficult. <laughs> so Clydesdale Bank, Bank, Yorkshire Bank, and now Virgin Money is the, it's the holding company for that. Um, because I, I wonder if this, if this says something about the, the products and the, the, the services they're offering are very much a digitized version of what's come before. Mm. And you really do need uh, to a, a significant change in that internal architecture. You need microservices and a cloud-based architecture that means that 20 product teams can be working on things simultaneously in order to iterate and develop. And also that you're not tied to a, a product engine that was designed for a 1980s bank account. Here's your balance. It's batch-based, all of these kinds of things. So you want real-time transactions. You want uh, you know, metadata on these things. You want to, all, you know, all of the data that happens, a fire hose of data that comes in, in that you can then you know, uh, use in a variety of different ways to deliver intelligent services to end customers. So, and if you've decided that actually that's not something you need, that you've got your core banking system and it's good enough, I worry that I worry that what that says around uh, yeah. CYBG. We should get them on the on the uh, on the show to have a have a chat about. Yeah, it. We, we we do. We've had um, David Duffy on previously, long before this announcement came. So we'll we'll see what we can do. Watch this space. Uh, we spoke briefly about um, fundraising and uh, talk about fundraising. A story in City AM: the fintech startup Revolut are in talks to raise five hundred million million dollars from SoftBank. That's a serious slug of cash. So uh, it comes less than seven months since Revolut closed their last funding round at $250 million, um, which valued them at $1.7 billion, a so-called unicorn. Um, Not known if previous backers such as Index, uh, DST and others will align to this round. Um, But SoftBank had said earlier this year they were looking to deploy $200 million into fintech uh, from its $100 billion dollar vision fund um and sky news um had reported that they'd explored an investment in oak north um so the vision fund uh, and softbank have been under increasing scrutiny in recent months as a significant portion of its backing is sourced from saudi arabia's public investment fund and of course saudi arabia has been heavily criticized in the news lately um if you follow those events um mm. so before we get into this one we spoke to emily nicole who is the author of this article article at City AM to give us her thoughts. When I first heard about this story, I thought it was super interesting because as everybody knows, SoftBank is a major tech fan. They back the likes of Arm Holdings, WeWork, um, and a a slew of other technology stalwarts over the years. Um, And then earlier on this year, we learned as well that they're looking to put about 200 million of their 100 billion vision fund 
um, directly into fintech. And so we've all kind of been waiting to see where that might go. Um, earlier this year, it was reported that Challenger Bank Oak North was one of its targets. And now we've learned as well that Revolut is in its sights as too. Um, the news that Revolut is raising again is probably actually not much of a surprise to those of us that know Revolut well. Um, they've been looking at targeting US expansion over the last few months, um, something that was said to happen earlier this year and has been pushed back again and again. Everybody understands now, I think, that the US is an incredibly hard market to crack um, and costs a lot of money to do so. So even though Revolut only raised its um, last fundraising round, probably in April, I think, not that long ago, um, it's actually having to raise again from the news that we've got here. Um, reasons why SoftBank would be interested in Revolut, I mean, they're a fast-growing startup. They're raising pretty much more than anybody else at this point, I suggest. Um, and so obviously there's a lot of potential there. And SoftBank love to get involved when a company is on the up and on the rise as Revolut is. Um, so it's a very exciting time for them. What Revolut is likely to do with the money? Well, I'd suggest, I think, in my opinion, they're probably going to be using it to channel straight into that US expansion. I was told a while ago that Revolut was um, looking to eventually achieve a license in every one of the 50 states, which is obviously a very costly thing to do. And then also they've got a bunch of other features on the horizon as well. Zero fee commission trading is one of those, um, as well as, you know, maybe probably expanding a bit further into lending and who knows, maybe a UK banking license at some point. Um, the idea that Revolut is a cash burning fintech is no surprise to anybody. So um, having to raise again is just probably on the agenda for them for the next few years until they hit profitability. Alrighty, thank you very much to uh, Emily Nicole. Uh, some interesting points there. I mean, that's a big old investment. And coming on the heels of them having invested in WeWork, making WeWork bigger than the Ford Motor Company, having previously invested in Uber, this is a, a big old fund. And it sounds like Revolut are doing all of the features in all of the states. Um, is it that Uber strategy of just uh, you know, win market share and don't care who we break along the way? Or is this like um, a need for real growth because they're seeing that user track? I think they're definitely seeing user traction. And I would say that when it comes to, you know, challengers to the banking industry, Revolut is doing really exciting stuff. Uh, I'm not a big fan of the concept of just, you know, fundraising eternally for no particular reason. But, uh, you know, there is a reality here where they are getting a lot of, of customer traction. And that's that's a fact. People have been seeing the stats on that. And that's that's happening. Fintech's all grown up and they've been across Europe for a while. But free money attracts customers. And uh, hmm. when you're burning VC money to give people crazy great, you know, FX rates at wholesale pro prices a metal credit to a retail, card. exactly, <laughs> then, um, then you get user traction growth. I mean, it, you've got that VC model uh, and they're doubling down, tripling down, quadrupling down, like yeah. bring all the money in, go big, go big, uh, start, uh, well, use that VC money to grow a, a massive uh, user base, arguably across the world. And then you, it's a two-sided market, bring in the other products, bring in the other services, start to connect it up and away you go. I mean, it's the go big, go home strategy. Mm, yeah. It's uh, it's huge. I mean, it's similar to the WeWork model and similar to the Uber model, which if SoftBank have, you know, kind of track record in going for that type of growth business, which with all the risk it carries, it makes sense. On the other hand, you compared it with the, the Uber model, uh, but Uber actually invented a new business model, right, which didn't exist 
and Revolut is a really nice app. I, I love their product. It's, it's a beautiful app, but it's not a new business model. It's just another banking app, right? And it's offering the same services that other people are also already offering. So, I mean, you could argue that Uber was doing an arbitrage, right, on what was available already as well. Um, I mean, I would say that when you think about, you know, the entrepreneurship and the, the fintech and what's out there, some companies have to do this whole fundraising, go big and go home kind of thing. And so what's interesting is the numbers here. So I think the last announcement I saw with Revolut was over 3 million customers in Europe. Compare that with an Uber number of customers, compare that with a WeWork number of buildings. It, it does feel like the scale is, is a bit different, but it also seems like SoftBank is seeing something like SoftBank usually feel like they're a lot later stage than this. Mm. Um, but there's there's something interesting here and i wonder if um they have run out of money or if it's not that but the money was on the table and now is a good time to take it i, I don't think it renounced money no. i think this this just pushes that massive expansion i, I think it's interesting to compare it with my favorite monzo in the, in <laughs> you the, mean in those the guys i've heard of them <laughs> in the tom his his really pushing towards that profitability yeah you know they've already announced that every additional customer doesn't cost them any more so they've, you know, really been focusing on driving those costs down so that they're not burning VC capital with it to get those additional customers. But I've actually had people sort of criticize that that approach and mm-hmm. say, like, that's just not the, the modern way of doing it. I mean, that's the conservative route. You should just be burning that cash and, you know, in order to do the, the Revolut-like uh, approach. So, so it interests me, those two models. On one hand, it's like, a proper business has to make money at some point. On the other hand, it's like there's a lot of VC money and sovereign wealth floating around the world that could fund a land grab to grab those customers, to keep them engaged, and then build a profit, you know, a profit thing around it. The, the, the classic Amazon model, you mm-hmm. know, don't make any money for years and years and years, and then suddenly just make all the money. And it, people have that exact same criticism of Uber to this day. Um, and so if Revolut had been able to drive a lot of growth from it, I mean, who are we to argue? It seems extremely successful. Um, Alrighty, um, let's go to the next story, which um, I like Laura's headline for this better than the actual headline. So producer Laura's shout out. Um, Starling's gone postal. Uh, <laughs> well done, Laura. Uh, shout out to Donham, my apologies. Um, so this one comes from the FT. Digital bank Starling are going to roost on the high street. Um, so they are heading to the high street, uh, announcing a tie-up, allowing its personal and business customers to withdraw deposit cash over the counter at all 11,500 post office branches nationwide, um, which is quite similar to what we've seen from some of the high street banks in the UK. Um, this is in, set against a background of falling cash use across the UK. Um, but according to Julian Sawyer, who's the head of banking services at Starling, the post office has more outlets than all of the other banks combined. So it became an obvious channel for them to link up with. Um, and typically today, you can usually only manage your uh, banking activities through the mobile app. So um, cash deposits and withdrawal are free for Starling Bank personal or joint account holders and business accounts will pay a small fee. Um, the, um, Mr. Sawyer said the partnership would particularly benefit banking deserts, um, UK communities with no access to a high street bank branch, um, which is quite a lot. Um, and because the post office has 6,100-ish uh, 6, branches branches in rural communities. Um, so this is super interesting. Uh, we caught up with Megan Kaywood at Xerocon yesterday to tell us more about this announcement and what it means for users. Hi, I'm Megan Kaywood and I'm the Chief Platform Officer of Starling Bank. And this week we're super excited to share some news about how we've partnered with the post office. 
And what that means is they can go to any of the post offices, 11,500 locations, and be able to do that. And when they deposit cash, they'll instantly have that in their account. And so it's all about just making banking more accessible. We're really excited to have a mobile-only bank and to be making things super easy, like setting up an account and making payments, um, having really fair and transparent fees by not having any fees. But we really needed to take that to the next level by being really inclusive of people who also needed to have the cash withdrawal and depositability as well. So for us, we see it as a wider customer base from retail through business, particularly on the business side. There's lots of sole traders and small businesses who are still paid in cash from their clients. And so to better support those customers, this really helps them to manage their finances. But it's also just for people who are living outside of um, London or in places where lots of branches have been shutting down. And this is a really important facility from their bank. And so now, in light of these branch closures, they have this alternative option with the post office should they need it. I mean, it's pretty interesting stuff from Megan there. And I guess, look, this is uh, a great way to get distribution if you didn't have it before. Um, uh, I guess there's some interesting stuff going on here. Yours. Yeah, I think it's a pretty smart strategy, right, for a digital bank to cooperate with uh, the post office in this case because they already have the, the offices, they already have all the branches, they are already present in the in the rural area. So it's pretty smart. At, at low cost, they can offer the service that apparently their clients are demanding from them. So. But it isn't the same as a branch service, is it? I mean, it's cash in, cash out, but that's the one thing you couldn't really do before. But it's not the same as having a human I can talk to. But then they would say, I guess, that they have humans you can talk to through their app so it it is i guess subtly different but um i guess it depends what your competitive advantage is well i i think it's the way of the future i mean you've got way too many branches there were record number of closures last year and how many people really went there in order to have deep in-depth conversations they went to check their balance and to have you know to uh to drop money off or to take that check-in that aunt matilda gave you for your birthday Mm. all of those like all of those little things (laughs) um and and I think when we saw that, I think it was last year, all of the banks were sort of moving towards the scheme that let post offices then take on the physical banking requirements. Like that surely is a great way forward because you've got, I think it's something like 90, I've got the stats here, 93% of the population was within three miles of a post office. Mm-hmm. So suddenly it's like, do you, do you really need all of those branches out there? Or can we start moving the uh, the the transactional things online, the, uh, the the real relationship to a to a mobile device or to a desktop, and for the physical things, the checks, the the cash, you just need a place, and That's a post right. office is a is a place you can trust. It's neutral ground. It's Switzerland in the mm. in the bank wars, <laughs> so it's good for that that is, stuff. Is there a worry about vulnerable customers though, uh, the elderly, the people who don't know how to use digital services? Yeah, that's obviously a big problem also for us, uh, for Rabobank. Uh, we have a strong local presence still, and we have uh, we are a cooperative bank, so not listed on the stock exchange. So we have yeah we have a responsibility in the society as well to also serve older customers. And in the Netherlands, you also see some interesting things, right? Because cash is becoming less and less important. Uh, for instance, the Dutch banks recently announced uh, that the cash machines uh, they're not going to do that themselves anymore. So they started a new company, the three big Dutch. Banks banks um, and they are going to do the cash machines but that's that's uh, that will also give a lot more efficiency because at uh, currently you have an ABN AMRO cash machine a Rabobank cash machine an ING cash machine in one street <laughs> and with this new service you will only have one cash machine so it's a lot a lot cheaper but for uh, people who still use cash mainly older people 
it's there. But I, I guess this comes back to like um, the maturation of what we're seeing in fintech. I mean, with the last story, um, you saw Revolut are really growing. Fintech is not on its way. It's it's well and truly here. And, and this is becoming mainstream if they're needing to do this sort of stuff. I mean, Starling are releasing features at a rate of knots at the moment. They're really releasing a lot of cool stuff. And of course, if you want to see more, then why not have a look at 11FS Pulse? <laughs> oh, wow. Cheap plug of the day. Wow. I had to get it in. <laughs> are you, have you ever seen 11FS Pulse, Yoast? I am probably one of the most heavy users of the product. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. You You're can come on the podcast again. <laughs> yeah, we, we like a Pulse nerd. All right, next story. Um, this is, um, well, um, simple. Uh, the bank in the U.S. have apparently attracted a former Amazon on exec as their new CEO. And just as a quick reminder, we interviewed the uh, former co-founder of Simple Bank, Shamir Karkul, in episode 254. And of course, um, they were one of the first neobanks. They were one really long before there was uh, Monzo and Starling and all the UK um, mm. challenger banks like Revolut and so on. Simple were one of the first. Um, but actually, they've had quite a few changes in the last couple of years. So um, th- this chap takes over from uh, Dixon Chu, who was um, the interim chief executive. Um, and they joined Simple after a turbulent couple of years since their acquisition um, by BVA in 2014. Uh, the company's now lost all of its co-founders and last year laid off 10% of its staff as it struggled with the realities of transitioning from tech startup to straight-up banking entity. Um, so this is a really interesting one. Do do startups perform better with founders, Diana, do you think? Oh. I think so, of course. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's a given. I mean, th- there is a reality that you have the, the philosophy about like, you know, wartime CEOs and founders and peacetime CEOs. And I think that the, you, you need a bit of everything. So when you start a company, you probably want wartime people who are going to be hustling to death about everything. And then there is a reality that a company reaches a certain level of profitability and growth where maybe you need a certain different profile. Uh, it was predictable, you know, since the acquisition with BVA, um, you know, some of these acquisitions that they have been doing in the market, not just simple, uh, they do do a whole revamping of the of the board and of the funding team. And uh, it's just expecting, it's just the reality of the, of the market. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. You know, w- when things grow, when they get to a certain level of maturity, then suddenly you're bringing people in to, to grow, to scale, the thing's finished. But I'm not sure that that's the story here. I mean, BBVA wrote down their simple purchase. Yeah. So it was like 117 million they paid and they wrote it down by 89.5 million. So that's not a mature, growing, you know, profitable enterprise. That's something that, that imploded or at least, you know, uh, has not It was not overvalued grown. for sure. It of was, course. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, well, 117 million for a, for a working sort of digital bank compared to the billions, you know, that 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 Revolut, Monzo, and others are, are worth. Yeah. So, um, so I think there's an interesting point there as to you know, uh, you know, has that really been a success for BBVA? They acquired it. They've acquired Holvi. They've acquired Simple. But I haven't heard a lot about either of the either of those organisations. No, Rather I than think- accelerating them along. The you know don't don't seem to have made a big splash. No, I think that if you speak even to people that know about these investments, they would not necessarily think that they were successful 
you know, ventures overall. And what's interesting is people so often look at the UK challenges and go, oh, surely they'll get acquired. And actually, to me, with the SoftBank investment shows that I don't know if that's necessarily going to be the case. Like, uh, actually, maybe they're better off alone. Um, And if you are a big bank and you are wanting to develop this sort of capability, the straight up M&A might not be the answer. In fact, this probably reads as a cautionary tale. But that's set against a backdrop of BBVA who are fantastic at launching their own internal capabilities mm. when it comes to developing their own tech and their uh, open banking platform it's argued in my opinion it's the best in class so it's not like they lack the skills or the talent internally there's just something about this culture class and governance clash of as soon as you're owned um, more than i think what is it 38 percent under european law by um, the parent entity then you're subject to its governance and the people who found a company may do things in a very different way to the people who've been running a company for a couple of hundred years and, and the cultures that are inherent there um, is this a tech problem a culture problem and, and how do you get around that, I wonder. Yeah, you don't have to answer that one. <laughs> no, I would say it's probably more a culture problem than anything else. And I think that, you know, we see it very often as founders, we made a decision that we didn't want to do the whole fundraising madness adventure. And we've really not fundraised uh, as a company. So we've bootstrapped the whole, um, the whole business with Suede. And that is a journey for us. So we've really the reason we decided not to do that is because we wanted to continue running our company the way we wanted to run it. I think it's very real that when you get investment in, you're you know you're signing a contract with a boss effectively, and you need to really take that on board when 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 you do that and understand the consequences of that as well in terms of your freedom as an entrepreneur. Which is why I thought that model that I just talked about earlier of the sort of a later stage development um, for a for an entrepreneur inside the organization that then becomes a new co. I think that's a really interesting. Model. And I wonder if we'll see more of that sort of inside out um, capabilities being developed rather than just bringing the outside in in that traditional MA. Alrighty. Um, that's all for now. We're just going to have a very quick break and we'll be right back. I wonder if a robot will be driving us to work in the future. They say robots could become more intelligent than humans, which can only be a good thing, right? Stephen Hawking said the rise of robots could be disastrous for mankind. Well, I'm looking forward to robots doing the hard parts of my job. If they're smarter than you, they might kick you out of your job. Artificial intelligence. Innovation or invasion. Don't settle for black or white. For the full perspective, turn to the Financial Times. Visit ft.com forward slash subscribe today. Today... Customers are demanding greater value from financial services. They expect more agility, innovation and security than ever before. Most financial institutions are held back by the shackles of closed legacy systems that limit transparency, block innovation and ignore customers' demands. Finastra has a bold vision to unlock the potential of people and business. They've created a platform for open innovation in the world of financial services with FusionFabric.cloud. Their solutions span retail, transaction lending, and treasury and capital markets on-premise and in the cloud. Start your transformation journey today with Finastra. Welcome back to Fintech Insider. 
Slush 2018 is right around the corner. And of course, last year we took Fintech Insider Live to Finland for the first time. And we threw, well, it was a bit of a one of a kind beach party in the middle of um, the uh, Finnish. Well, it was a beach that we were on, Jason. Do you remember that one? Mm, yeah, they filled a uh, sort of large warehouse with sand because I think it was a beach volleyball indoor court or something <laughs> and then made it all tropical. It was quite bizarre to be so cold outside and uh, to be so hot inside. And wearing shorts in Finland in the middle of winter. Mm. Um, that that was surreal. But uh, uh, if you'll be at Slush on Tuesday the 4th of December, we'll be, uh, we'll be turning up the after party just by a notch or two, maybe a notch or 11. Um, and we're opening with the very special FinTech Insider live at a historic location near the Slush main venue. So head to uh, op-lab.fi for more details, and we're looking forward to seeing you there. Alrighty, on with the show. All right, next story. Um, Fluidly um, have raised £5 million in Series A funding. And of course, our very own Sarah Kachansky caught up with Fluidly CEO Caroline Plum at Zerocon yesterday to find out more about this money and what it's used for. Let's hear from them now. So we're delighted that we closed our Series A funding round uh, this week, £5 million, led by a US venture capital firm. So we're really thrilled. And we're going to use it all to expand our product, expand engineering, data science, and really build out the ultimate cash flow <laughs> forecasting and management app. We know that cash flow is the most important criteria for a business, whether it's, it's the line between success and failure. And it's also the key area that accountants can deliver advisory services on. And really what Fluidly is building is the first automated um, cash flow forecasting system that allows you to actually use the data that's already in the accounting package to go from what's going to happen into the future to so what and now what. Alrighty, thanks very much to Sarah and thank you to, of course, Caroline and regular listeners. Keen listeners will know Caroline's been on the show many, many times and we're um, happy to see her doing well. Um, Jason, you know a little bit about cash flow and small businesses lately. Um, so, I mean, what Caroline was talking about there about the ability to see the future is, is crucial for everybody. This cash flow thing is, is, seems to be the big thing. Yeah, I mean, we've seen SMEs put up with a glorified personal current account that they've had to pay for for a very long time. And if there's ever a a group of customers that have some really specific jobs to be done, some real needs around invoices they're sending out and bills that are coming in, you know, businesses aren't aren't run on a cash basis. They have all of these weird 30, 60 day terms that all overlap. So you can be, you know, uh, invoicing and owed a ton of money and just insolvent. You know, you can be technically out of business, legally out of business, even though you've got loads of money coming in. So, you know, it's a, it's a truism. The thing that kills businesses is cash flow. And if you can have help, if you can have these intelligent services uh, delivering more insights to you rather than just a balance and a list of transactions as to what's happening now, what I need to do and what's happening in the future – that that's where things are going. I think it's this interesting position that Fluidly find themselves in, integrating to the accounting package and through open banking. So it's like with the stuff you've already got, we're going to try and give you that capability. And in the Dutch market, there's been, I guess, a, a lot of movement around open banking and SMB is still a, a big theme for you guys as well. Yeah, absolutely. We're working very hard at the moment also at uh, machine learning to forecast transactions and stuff like that. Uh, our Rabo developer portal has opened a couple of weeks ago. So uh, our APIs are now 
now available to the developer community. We are a little bit behind the UK market in the Netherlands. The legislation is not active yet. And we already have some uh, some cool uh, partnerships with uh, uh, yeah, also startups. Actually, uh, for instance, Tello is a nice one to mention. It's a really cool bookkeeping uh, app for accounting app for um, self-employed people uh, and small companies. It uses our Rabobank APIs and um, yeah, it, it, it basically it, it ties in with the open banking model. And we do so. We're doing all of the things. Basically, we are doing all of the things. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. We we are providing the APIs. We are building cool new apps in startup uh, companies to help self-employed employees and uh, and small SMEs in this case. And we are doing the machine learning thing with uh, transaction forecasting, categorization, all that that kind of stuff. I think that portfolio approach is interesting, right? You can't just do one of those things. Your customers are going to have different needs in different sectors. A small business that's a sole trader or a freelance. Um, that works internationally is very different to a 150-person business. Yeah, I mean, as a, I would say that as an SME ourselves, I can see the pain is, is definitely there. <laughs> uh, the things that we have to deal with in terms of like invoicing. I recently hired a guy actually who had a business where they had very large invoices that they were, you know, factoring to, to their clients that simply because they didn't come in in time ended up going bust. And then he was free in the market for me to hire. <laughs> but, <laughs> so there's a good ending to the story. But it is a reality that cash flows are, is, is critical. Um, I mean, the story from my perspective is really the, the interest around like AI and power technologies and, and what that can be doing in the market, because that's definitely, I think, coming center stage in financial services. Um, I was at Cybos a couple of weeks ago and I was doing a whole day for them on, you know, AI and the ethics around AI as well. And I think that we're going to see so much more in financial services triggered by AI. How much of this is AI, though, and how much of it is just really good rules-based engines of, like, that invoice is out of date, this one hasn't paid you back yet? I mean, is it really sort of deep learning we need here or is this sort of very simple rules stuff? Well, you start with machine learning, which is a lot more rules-based effectively, but eventually you're looking at a world where, you know, you will have much better machines that really start triggering an artificial intelligence intelligence that uh, can actually be used for other things. So I guess it's moving away from like, here's the stuff you need to action right now. So here's how you optimize and improve and and kind of, so it's not just the stuff you should do. It's stuff that you could do that would make it even better. That's right. Yeah, I think with uh, just simple rule-based uh, models, you can't make the precision and coverage that you actually need for your customers. You need to do, you need to have some form of machine learning, um, artificial intelligence, uh, you also have to have specific models for specific uh, transaction types, for instance. You need to have a sophisticated model, else it's just not good enough. Although I guess the uh, the challenge to that is, you know, machine learning needs a lot of data yeah. to get good at what it's doing. And if if I'm running a small startup and I've made 50 invoices and they've been paid 40 times, that isn't enough to train a model, you know, to a, to a good resolution. Yeah, but if you have the data of many companies sure. in the same sure. industry, you can combine that data to come up with better exactly. models, better predictions. So. Uh, and then it's a case of, you know, you've got statistically the average or, or some, you know, some uh, details there, or, or you're looking at a variety of data about the suppliers that are paying you or those that aren't, and, and there's, there's data to train them on the models. But I think that's where you have you know significant advantage over the new players because you have so many customers already to do that with. You know, the number of startups I see pitching for money and they say we're going to use AI. It's like, yeah. well, not very effectively in the first few years, you, you know, you're not. 
And I think that's the thing, isn't it? Is what value can you add before the AI is there? And can you solve the problems in the short term and then start to build out to the really um, uh, kind of impressive forward looking stuff? So, of course, we'll keep watching this one. Um, well done again to uh, all the folks at Fluidly. Uh, next story comes from CNBC. Uh, Alibaba sets a new singles day record in a surprise to nobody with more than 30.8 billion US dollars in sales in 24 hours. Um, that topped the 25.3 billion uh, in 2017 uh, and a billion dollars in one minute and 25 seconds. Just damn. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, and uh, the single day haul exceeded the spending by consumers during any single US uh, shopping day. Um, and the Chinese giant, of course, is putting a big focus this year on a strategy it calls New Retail, which aims to bring together online parts of its business with offline. I think that's particularly interesting. Um, and of course, Singles Day could provide some relief to investors amid concerns that the US-China trade war um, has hit the Chinese consumer appetite. Um, so it's pretty interesting. So um, the event, which is called the Double Eleven, um, happens on, of course, November the 11th. I, I, I quite like all the 11s there. But, but you know my, my favourite part of this story? Do you know what kicked off the whole thing? It was a gala featuring US singer Mariah Carey, a Japanese Beyonce impersonator, and a shoe-shopping-themed Cirque du Soleil performance. Wow. I, I just don't... I think that you stop there. Like how, <laughs> how do you improve on that? I know that Jack Ma can also do a really good impersonation of Michael Jackson. That, that, that Jack clip Ma is, is on YouTube. Now. He's uh, becoming a teacher, so he was not part of that conversation. And if that isn't strange enough, I mean, Alibaba invented this. They invented the it's occasion. It's the original Hallmark holiday, isn't it? it? Is. They, they, they made it to celebrate the unattached as the antithesis to the romantically involved Valentine's Day. Take that, Valentine's Day. <laughs> Singles Day is going to rule. Buy yourself a thing. If you like it, you should have put a ring on yourself. Maybe, <laughs> Maybe that's what she sang in the, uh, the Japanese impersonator. Uh, wow, the so Japanese funny. impersonator version of that I'd pay to see. <laughs> but I think there's something about new retail here. Yeah, I'm, I'm so fascinated by China and by companies like Alibaba, the, the, the amount of people there, but also the, the tech. So we all think, still think that uh, in, the, in the Western world, we all still think that Silicon Valley is the head of tech, right? Mm. No way. Shenzhen is far ahead on uh, Silicon Valley already, but yeah, a lot of people don't know that. So it, for me, it's so intriguing how China is developing and uh, how it's how it's still growing and and these amounts these figures are just ridiculous right it's <laughs> <laughs> but it's something interesting about the nature of compounding right so uh, two or five percent growth when you've got a billion people is still massive but they've been doing six or seven percent year on year for gdp for about 20 years yeah, with a billion crazy. people of a population i mean it's just huge so the magic of compounding is one of those things that i wish they taught me in school um because but you really see it happening here uh, that you know you don't need they don't need to do a big percentage change for the numbers to change massively and i love that they made up their own holiday like we've not seen that kind of inventiveness from big tech yeah. in the western world this is this is innovation of a completely different way and yes they've they've built a two-sided market um in terms of they provide the merchant services and they provide the wallet and so and then they've got the data on both ends of that so they can really optimize um and then they're also providing all of the aws stuff that sits behind it for everybody to build their shops and platforms on um it's a really interesting company and um and 
just fascinating to watch them grow. It's really, really exciting. So I was actually in China earlier in September and uh, as part of the World Economic Forum. So we've been chosen as tech pioneers, which is super exciting. So I was there for that. And um, so we had the privilege to spend some time with Jack Ma. So it was literally like a closed session. And he's just such a legend, right? He's one of these people that you want them to do well. And the reality is that he's been, I mean, Alibaba has been extremely successful in basically a very closed market, right? So China kind of does, as a, you know, they work as a republic. It's still not that necessarily as democratic as everyone would want it to be. And it's quite impressive to see that, you know, people have just wanted him and the company to be successful to the extent it has been successful. Um, you know, not, I don't think it would be that easy for other entrepreneurs to, to make it that far. But, you know, go Alibaba, definitely. And pretty, there's a great inspiring. question about uh, whether or not it does go make it out in the country. Now, they've been successful in the region. Um, they've definitely been uh, sort of um, through Southeast Asia. They've, they've grown their user base. Um, but yet, as yet, they've not to really make it into another continent, although we are starting to see well, it in Scandinavia to actually, a certain degree. in the Netherlands, yeah. it's quite uh, becoming quite popular. popular. Really? We have AliExpress mm. in the Netherlands, which is a shopping app. We have Wish in the Netherlands. Same company, I think. I'm not sure. And it's it's uh, really, really popular. So uh, all of the stuff Ooh. that's coming in through customs uh, and Report nobody pays from it. from the front line of the yeah, Netherlands right absolutely. here. absolutely. <laughs> it's really, really that's popular. Uh, to be honest, I buy a lot of T-shirts at AliExpress as well. So. <laughs> <laughs> wow. They're man. really, really cheap and quite good. <laughs> that's amazing. You heard it here first, guys. Um, this is why it's great to have people like Joost on the show. You give us a perspective <laughs> that we otherwise wouldn't get. And I want to know what those T-shirts are now. Um, but... But moving on, um, a story from Finextra. Um, Bank of America have faced a trademark dispute over the Erica chatbot. Um, so Bank of America has been sued by a man over the use of the name Erica for its AI-powered virtual assistant. So it rolled it out to millions of customers over the summer. Um, and like a lot of chatbots, um, it's crap. No, uh, like a lot of chatbots, it helps users with a host of simple transactions such as money transfers, balance inquiries, and Eric Underwood registered his own virtual assistant called Erica um, in Georgia in October 2010. Um, his Erica acted as a search engine for uh, the an entertainment news site uh, and described as a mobile search engine. So he's now seeking damages um, as well as reimbursements. And uh, uh, he's apparently... Uh, uh, being issuing a cease and desist as well. Um, so the Erica, the chatbot app for Bank of America, um, there's a lot of Ericas and Americas going on here, um, has had $60 million funneled into it. Um, and Bank of America used an attorney to investigate whether the trademark was available for use. So they've definitely looked at it. Um, is this one a bit frivolous? Well, I, you just got to say, America. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I mean America. it's the, you know, for a business. We love you, Sam. It's, uh, you know, the most litigious society yeah. you know, in the world. You know, I, um, it's their I just hobby, right? Well, sue, I, found a, I found a survey from Norton Rose Fulbright's 2015 Litigation Trends Annual Survey. And they said that uh, 50, uh, 55% of, of businesses were facing more than five lawsuits against their companies in the last 12 months. Oh, my God. Uh, you're like, what? And then um, there was, uh, meanwhile, 18% of US companies reported no l lawsuits. 18%. So everyone's getting sued for everything. <laughs> yeah. You know, and the fact that someone who, uh, who had set up this, you know, small, you know, chatbot thing in Georgia called 
Erica with dots between it, which wasn't a banking thing or anything to do it. And and even though Erica, you could only get to by logging into Bank of America. So the whole like, well, you could get mistaken. You could get mixed up. You could log into Bank of America and expect to see my, you know, chatbot in there. No. No, that's just, just wrong. No. <laughs> you know, but the fact that the guy, you know, come away with a few million or a settlement or something, I mean, I think that's all you have to say, surely. It's, yeah. it's just surreal. So when we did a trade mission uh, with the UK government... You were sued. No, no yeah. but they were telling us, as in we had a whole morning where literally they brought in lawyers and they were like, it was a trade mission to New York and they were like, if you want to open a business in New York or in, in America, just be aware of all of these things that you could get sued about. And you're like, well, maybe I don't want to start working in America anytime soon. <laughs> because of that, it's just surreal. I, I like the guy's last name, by the way. Eric Underwood sounds like the evil <laughs> twin of Frank Underwood from House of Cards. <laughs> wow, yeah. Uh, it's nice. a good, yeah, maybe yeah. That, that's what happened after, yeah, uh, he got written <laughs> off the show. He... <laughs> Alrighty. Um, our unfinally story this week comes from Sky News. Um, and a PayPal have banned a man with two names. Uh, so they've banned Tommy Robinson from its platform, who is the former English Defence League leader, um, a.k.a. Stephen Yaxley-Lennon. Uh, Yaxley-Lennon, there's a last name for you. <laughs> And it will no longer process payments on his behalf. Oh, dear. Um, the online payment system said its services cannot be used to promote hate, violence, or other forms of intolerance that is discriminatory. Online petitions calling for companies like PayPal to stop processing payments have gained thousands of signatures. And, of course, the far-right figure who said he'd been using the platform to collect donations for his legal battles branded the withdrawal of his services fascism <laughs> and said the platform don't like my opinion and want to silence me. Um, okay, great. Um, and the platform suspended and banned accounts before, um, and uh, they commented, we do not take decisions like these lightly. We work hard to be rigorous and fair-minded. Um, I'm just wondering if other people with two names would get banned as well. Like, is this the two names thing, or is it, like, is Cher in trouble here? <laughs> <laughs> Lady Gaga? I, I think it's get... probably more that it's a far-right Islamophobic organisation. Yeah. <laughs> um, although it does, it does bring up that the... Um, you know, the question of sort of regulation uh, uh, by companies. You know, the, it was, wasn't the government that stepped in and said, here's a court order. It was a company that decided, you know, is deciding policy, you know, and there's a, a liberalism agenda, you know, around uh, who can get funded and who can't. Uh, uh, and it's 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 interesting because it's a, a multifaceted argument as to who should be making that decision. Should it be Zuckerberg and, you know, the PayPal board and whoever who, who decide these things? Um, uh, and, and what effect does that have in society? I actually think it's quite good that we have companies stepping up for what they believe in, right? Um, and they are part of society. They have a role to play in society. So I think it's quite strong if they speak out on things they strongly believe in. And also, if you want to attract good employees, right, if you want to attract the best people, uh, if you state that you're against this kind of nonsense, then you will probably attract millennials who also believe, want to believe in stuff before they start joining. Uh, I think it's the big thing in so. marketing right now. So we saw, I think the classic recent one was Nike with yeah, Colin exactly. Kaepernick. Yeah. I mean, my 
God, did they nail it. Come out and stand for something. But they also created a lot of enemies in the process. A lot of people were were boycott night. Burning their shoes. All kinds of things. So it has a cost, but it plays to your core demographic. And I actually saw an advert from uh, UK High Street Bank talking up um, the work they do to support people with mental health challenges and um, creating better financial wellness. And I'm starting to see that standing for a cause is becoming the marketing sort of um, strategy. But you have to follow that through in the entire organization i think if you just do it as an advertisement that's been paid for it's very different to is that what your organization stands for i mean i think that it's obviously super positive when the you know companies really think about what they're you know they're backing or not Uh, but i do find that worrying as well because it could make a mistake so ideally i'd like to see government stepping in and actually being the ones doing this kind of final judgment Uh, unfortunately the reality is that they don't move fast enough for those things to happen efficiently and then we end up with this situation where companies are the ones that have to make the final call but it could go the other way right which is what i find quite dangerous and i'm sure you know on uh, Blockchain Insider, there'd be more than a few people saying, well, actually, this is why you need decentralized currencies. Yeah, like, in no way would I, you know, support or defend an Islamic phobic far-right organization. But, the, but to a certain extent, this is centralized organizations deciding who can transact and who can't. And, and that can work against you legitimately. So that can be somebody creating a social credit score that meant if I chose to have a beer with my friends, suddenly um, my credit worthiness has decreased and I can't get a mortgage. So centralization can work for you in some cases, um, but, but it depends who you are and what you want to achieve. So it's a matter of perspective to a certain degree. So whilst uh, I think there are there is definitely a community of anarchists who want decentralization without question. Uh, I think there's also some value in being able to build community governance that could move at the speed of uh, digital. And community governance that could move at the speed of like the 1800s is the legal system. Community governance today, well, we haven't really seen that. So the big tech giants are shouldering that responsibility. And I think that's puts them in an interesting place. Uh, actually, maybe a better story, because this, this is obviously the right thing to do here. But WikiLeaks is a good example, because actually they were starved by fun of fun as well yep. uh, by the big you know visa mastercard whoever not allowing that so it's interesting when you get to that sort of like middle ground of is wikileaks a good thing or a bad thing and and who's deciding that and how is that being decided uh, i think that's an interesting yeah area. It, it is but i do think that somewhere we need to start getting our policymakers and politicians and regulators accountable for just moving a lot faster than they are right now. So that they should be the ones policing this market, not necessarily businesses. So I think that the the ones that got this right was Wikipedia. Um, Even though their technology is centralized, their governance is decentralized. And I think actually that's a model we could look to follow because if you look at what that meant, it meant that now you have a community of uh, tens of thousands of people around the world organizing the world's information. And so if you wind the clock back to 2004, 2003, you know, if you wanted a, a, an encyclopedia, the answer was Microsoft and Carter, and it, it wasn't even a competition. Um, you know, many listeners will remember that, but the really young amongst you won't remember the CD-ROMs that you would get back at school, and you know, you would uh, kind of have basically Wikipedia, but on a disc, and it had a limited amount of capability on it, whereas. There was a point as well where Wikipedia was this wild west of graffiti and um, information you couldn't trust. And no, you could not cite it in academia. And I think it's still kind of controversial whether or not you can. 
But the reality is Wikipedia's table stakes. It's accepted and it's by far the best um, encyclopedia humanity has and by far the most used um, by, by a long stretch. So the, there's something interesting about uh, how organizations can stand for something, but communities um, can play a role if they're organized digitally. And I wonder if we'll start to see more of that. Alrighty. Uh, well, that wraps us up for this week. Um, uh, that's another good show. Where can people find out more about you, Joost? Uh, well, I'm at the European Digital Banking Summit next week. I'm also on a panel there. That's very nice uh, to mention. And, of course, they can look me up on LinkedIn, and I always respond to uh, interesting questions. Uh, Indeed. All righty. Um, and, of course, they can see you browsing 11FS Pulse, right? Of course. <laughs> of course. <laughs> Live. <laughs> yeah, that would be weird. Uh, live streaming somebody using Pulse. <laughs> get, get that Twitch account open, people. Um, and, Diana, what about yourself? Uh, so you can look us up at suede.org. Uh, uh, you can see a bit more how we're doing regulatory technology to prevent the next financial crisis. Uh, I do speak regularly at events, and I'll also be at Davos in January if anyone is around. Happy to connect. Doing all the things. Respect. Yeah. <laughs> and, Jason, what about your good self? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Jason Bates. Great. And as for me, at SYTaylor on Twitter. Uh, what about you? What do you think of today's stories? Let us know on Twitter at Fintech Insiders. And don't forget, if you love this show, uh, then leave us a review. Um, those reviews help us out so much. Thank you for listening. Goodbye for now. <laughs>